Okay, so today we're going to talk about methods of nonlinear spectroscopy. So nonlinear generally implies a high power, high power or multi-photon interaction, which is more common when you have high power. So we've talked about both of these things to some extent. Uh, we've dealt with what happens when you have high power, when we talked about saturation broadening of line profiles, and we've talked about two photon absorption effects a couple of times, um, and counterpropagating beams with intermodulated fluorescence for eliminating the effect of Doppler broadening. And I think there was one other time we talked about two photon, uh, resonant enhanced multi-photon ionization was another effect that had a two photon interaction. Okay, so we'll just sort of uh, expand on that. So first we'll look at some effects uh, rather than, well, some effects that occur when you have relatively high power, hole burning and the lamb dip. Those are uh, effects in the absorption profile. So chapter three in Demtroder talked about the different uh, line profiles and the, the broadening mechanisms that would affect it. We talked about line profiles either being Lorentzian or Gaussian or some combination of the two called the void profile. And we'll see that when you have saturation, you can get hole burning where the, the nice mathematical shape that we described before has some structure on top of it, which we call the hole. And depending on how you observe that line spectrum, you can see what's called the lamb dip, which is very useful for spectroscopy because it's a, uh, it's a profile or it's a structure on top of the line width that is not limited by Doppler broadening, even if the, the underlying line is. So there's a number of experimental arrangements that take advantage of these effects. And so we'll look at some of these different methods of saturation spectroscopy. We'll look at the, uh, basically the experimental setups and try to describe how they use these effects to allow you to see the natural line width underneath a Doppler broadened line width. And then we'll talk about some of the challenges to doing that, like crossover effects when you have uh, multiple, multiple resonant frequencies near the laser frequency that you're dealing with. And we'll touch on a couple other um, techniques in very, very little detail. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about saturation. We saw that the saturated line width is related to the natural line width or whatever homogeneous line width we have, whether it's broadened by pressure broadening or transit time broadening or some other mechanism, um, and increased by some amount due to saturation. So this parameter S0 is a measure of how hard we're pumping the system. So we'll rederive that, or we'll look back at the slide where we talked about that to remind ourselves of what that means. And the mechanism here is that um, as high power interacts with the system, it tends to reduce the amount of population in the ground state by pumping it to the upper state. So you reduce the amount of material that can absorb, and you reduce it more in the line kernel the center of the line where there's more absorption than you do on the edges where there's very little absorption. And that has the effect of broadening the line by reducing the peak, thereby spreading out the full width half max. 
And so that description, although we didn't, I didn't go into enough detail at the time describing this, um, holds true for a homogeneously broadened line. When it's an inhomogeneously broadened line, like you'd have in a gas that's Doppler broadened, uh, the effect is a little bit different. And so we'll see that. Um, the result, which I'll quote right now, is that the inhomogeneous broadened line is essentially not affected by saturation effects. Can anybody think of a reason why that would be the case? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, let me draw something up on here on the board, and maybe you can put your answer in terms of what I'm drawing. Um, let's say this blue curve represents an inhomogeneous line width. I'm sorry, a homogeneous line width, meaning every atom in the material has the same line width. So this could be the natural line width of a system, for example. Then the absorption has a profile that looks like this. And so as we pump it, we decrease the amount of population at line center. Right? We have much less effect off line center. And as a result, this is what the uh, saturated line width looks like. Now down here, we've got a picture that sort of demonstrates where the inhomogeneous line shape comes from. It comes from the superposition of all the homogeneous line shapes for the atoms or molecules that, at least in the case of Doppler broadening, are moving with such a frequency or with such a speed that their uh, resonant frequency gets shifted by this amount, by this amount, by this amount, by this amount, by this amount. So if you have a distribution of velocities in your material, then you have a distribution of the resonant frequencies at which they will absorb. And if you weight those um, line profiles with the number of atoms or the relative population at a particular uh, velocity, then you get this sort of weighted average of the absorption lines. And when you sum those up, you get a net absorption profile, which we call the, the inhomogeneous line width. Okay, so for Doppler broadening, for gas at some thermal equilibrium, the relative population of these different uh, velocity components is going to obey a uh, Gaussian distribution. And therefore, if the spread is much larger than the spread of an, any individual homogeneous line width, this green profile is a Gaussian distribution. Okay, so. In terms of this picture, 
What happens to this picture when this high power light is incident? Jennifer? So if every component underneath this green curve drops by the same amount, and you're only mapping out the peak of these points, what you have for this green line is essentially the, uh, the envelope of the peak of all these homogeneous line profiles. Then if those homogeneous line profiles drop, that doesn't affect the width, because it, doesn't, um, it affects all the homogeneous line profiles under this envelope equally. So that's why I say, essentially, you wouldn't expect to see any net effect. All throughout this profile, the amount of absorption decreases by the same amount. Of course, there's, there's an assumption here that, the, uh, that I said this line, if this line is smaller, the homogeneous line is smaller than the inhomogeneous spread then all we're doing is tracing the, the peaks of these line profiles. If that's not entirely the case, if you have um, the homogeneous line width comparable to the inhomogeneous spread, then there's also a contrib contribution from these tails, which can be important. So that profile is called a Voigt profile. It was the convolution of a, a Lorentzian and a Gaussian. And so if those tails spread out, which is the equivalent of the center is dropping. Um, if the tails spread out, you'll have a small effect on this line profile. It's not going to be significant the way it was up here, but it'll have a small effect. So in the case where the homogeneous line width is comparable to the inhomogeneous broadening, then saturation broadening will have a, a detectable effect. Okay, but for the most part, uh, we'll treat it as if the inhomogeneous broadening is essentially unaffected by saturation. We would. Yeah, the, the amount of absorption would decrease, but it would decrease by the same fraction everywhere along this line profile. And remember, what causes a line broadening up here is that the center decreases by a larger fraction than the wings. Um, and if you think about the wings as not being reduced at all and the center being reduced, then when you calculate the full width half max, you're calculating the width at a lower intensity, which means further out in the wings. Okay, so let's consider two cases. One where we have a laser that's monochromatic, so a true delta function, or more specifically, the line width of the laser is much less than the line width of the absorbing transition. And we see what we just saw. Um, for the homogeneously broad-lined. So it will reduce the 
the line center more than it will reduce the line wings. But let's consider an inhomogeneously broadened line over here. If we have a narrow line width to our laser, consider the laser sitting over here. Before we said the reason that the, the profile shape didn't change is because all the little homogeneous profiles sitting under this green dotted curve were affected the same. Uh, and that's true if we have broadband illumination or illumination with a line width, laser line width greater than this uh, absorption line width. What if we have a true delta function sitting under here? What's, which of the homogeneous profiles that make up this distribution are going to be affected, are going to be saturated? Yeah, just only the ones over here. So you get saturation only at this frequency. And you won't get saturation at these other frequencies. As a result, this uh, this homogeneous profile over here will take a dip, and that will re result in your envelope getting a hole burned into it. Where the term hole burning comes from. So there will be saturation here. And the width of that hole is going to be the width of the homogeneous line profile underneath it. So this entire line profile may be spread out due to Doppler broadening, but the hole that's burned in there will not be. So observing the width of this hole could be a way to measure the line width of a transition without being influenced by Doppler broadening. Okay, so here's a picture of the two, two situations. One is where you have broadband illumination and one where you have narrowband illumination. So I just drew this picture on the board, but I'm going to describe it a little bit more because we're going to refer to this picture a number of times. and. Uh, I've drawn a lot of these pictures and done a few animations to hopefully clarify this, but if we don't understand the picture, then it's all useless. So again, these little gray lines here represent the contribution from atoms of different velocities that have resonant frequencies at different points, and the relative population of those atoms is related to the height of these absorption profiles. So they all add up to give this inhomogeneous profile. And when it's illuminated with broadband laser excitation, white light or a laser that has a bandwidth that's broader than this, all these different, all the atoms in the transition, or that contribute to the transition, will absorb an equal fraction of light. And so they will all saturate the same amount. The dotted line here, which is the unsaturated line width, will get saturated down and have the same shape. And here's the case for narrowband excitation. So this little red bar here represents the uh, laser wavelength that we're exciting with this with. And so it's going to only saturate the line profile that's sitting on top of it, the atoms that have a Doppler-shifted resonant frequency that corresponds to that laser frequency. So those, those atoms contributed this, inhomog or this homogeneous line profile to this inhomogeneous distribution. 
And so when they get saturated, their contribution gets reduced, which is shown up here, and that hole gets burned in. Yeah, that's a dip. So what this is plotting is the um, absorption the absorption cross section, the absorption. You can say it a number of different ways: the absorption cross section, or the uh, absorption coefficient, or the amount of power absorbed, or the fraction of power absorbed. Um, and you get a dip at the frequency at which the the laser is at. Well, yeah, if the laser it's narrow band, so it's narrower than this natural line width here, then it will excite all the atoms under this curve. And so the width of this curve will not be determined by the laser line width, it'll be determined by the absorption transition line width. If the laser is wider than that, but still less than this inhomogeneous line width, then it will excite essentially all the atoms within the laser line width, and you'll get a, a, a width that then would be the laser line width. And as it gets longer still, once it's longer than the entire uh, distribution of, of Doppler shifts, then you get this picture here, where they're all being essentially uniformly saturated. So we'll see that. In fact, this technique allows you to separate two very closely spaced transitions uh, from what would be an indistinguishable uh, smear of the, the two Doppler broad alignments. Okay, so you might think that you could measure this by scanning a laser across the absorption line and looking for this hole, which is called the Bennett hole, but you'd be wrong. You can't do that directly. And it, it may be obvious, it may not be, it depends on the picture you have in your head right now, but the laser is only capable of observing what's going on at that frequency. And so as you change the laser frequency, you change the frequency at which this Bennett hole exists. So it's always gonna be measuring the absorption at the center of the Bennett hole. So it's never gonna know anything about what the unsaturated absorption would be. It's only gonna know what the saturated absorption would be. You can use two lasers. One to saturate and create the hole, and one to scan across. So, I don't know if you caught the animation, but um, this is showing as the laser is tuned, the Bennett hole moves. The purple line represents the recorded absorption. And what it traces out then is exactly what you would see for a uniformly saturated profile. It's just, it's being, each component is being saturated by the same amount at the time it's measured. So our measurement is affecting the system. That's the problem. So we use what's called a pump probe method, where we have one laser that creates the hole and one that probes it. 
the probe laser is generally a much less powerful laser, so it doesn't produce the same amount of saturation. Okay, so um, since, since the amount of uh, reduction in the absorption is a function of the saturation parameter, I'll remind you where that saturation parameter comes from, what it means mathematically. If you have a two-level system, so some lower state and some upper state, and you, for the purposes of the mathematics, we'll restrict ourselves to only having those two possible states. You can generalize this with other states. You get slight modifications to the equations, but um, we'll just consider the two-level system. Then you have some thermal equilibrium where there's population in the upper state. There's more population in the lower state. As a result, if you send photons in that correspond to this energy level difference, they will tend to pump more atoms up than they will stimulate transitions down. So we'll let P represent the pumping rate, or the amount of power in the pump beam. And so the rate of transitions up is proportional to the pumping power, and it's proportional to the population in the lower state. And likewise, the rate of stimulated emission that occurs is proportional to the pumping rate and the population in the upper state. So if nj equals nk, then you have equal transitions up and down and you have a transparent material. If, k, if population in k, nk is greater than nj, you have net gain. You have more downward transitions than upward transitions. That's the laser material. And if, population, if NK is zero, you have an unsaturated system where essentially you're only, any pump photon you put in, you can assume is going to stimulate a transit air, be absorbed, and not have a chance of stimulating a transition. Okay, so these represent the rates of pumping up and the rates which the upper state's being pumped back down. But there's also a relaxation mechanism, so we'll call that R that allows the upper state to decay to the lower state. So R is the rate at which it relaxes. That's uh, 1 over the lifetime of the upper state, which happens to be the, the uh, line width of the transition. And NK is the population of the upper state. So the, the rate of downward transitions is proportional to the rate at which a single transition occurs times the number of atoms in the upper state. And so in the steady state, these two downward transitions should have a, a total downward rate that equals the rate of the upward transition. So we can set those things equal to each other. There's the upward transition. Here's the sum of the two downward transitions. And because we have a two-level system, we can simplify this a little bit by saying the total population of the two states is some conserved quantity call it n, the total number of atoms in our system. So we'll replace the number in the upper state with the total number minus the number in the lower state. We can then solve this expression here for n sub j. 
So, of course, it's a fraction of the total number of atoms. And it depends on how hard you're pumping and the relaxation rate. You can see that if you don't pump, so if P is equal to 0, N sub J is equal to N, N sub J is equal to N, meaning all the atoms would be in the ground state if you don't pump. And then if you pump hard, such that P is much greater than R, you can ignore R. This fraction becomes 1 half. It says if you pump hard, half the atoms are in the ground state. Why is it they're not all in the upper state? Yeah, because you're pumping in both directions. You're pumping up and pumping down. Okay, so we can then write the difference, nj minus nk. Here's our expression for nj. nk is just n minus that. Okay, so we can write that and express it, express it as n over 1 plus s. s is our saturation parameter. And it's the ratio 2p over r. So the harder you pump, look over here, the harder you pump, the greater S is. If you're not pumping at all, S is equal to 0. So S equals 0 means it's unsaturated. When you pump really hard, S can go to infinity. That's when it's fully saturated. And if we look over at this expression, when it's unsaturated, S is equal to 0. The population difference is n. When we pump really hard, S goes to infinity. This doesn't quite hold. I'll have to figure that one out. So if we want this to be a rate, this would be like photons per second. Yeah, so it would be <coughs> units of one over time. So if this is our population difference, then you can see it's decreased as the material saturates. And so the absorption gets decreased as the material saturates with the same behavior. So now we introduce this spectral distribution. And what that's saying is that the amount of saturation you have depends on frequency. Right? If you pump on line center, you get a lot of saturation because you have a lot of absorption. If you pump off resonance, then you're unlikely to be, your photons are less likely to be absorbed, you have less pumping. So this is a function of frequency. Its function of frequency looks like the line shape. So whatever the functional form of the line shape of the absorption profile is, that's what functional form S has. So we'll just explicitly write that as S of omega. And then we can write alpha of omega as the 
unsaturated absorption profile. That's what this is. And it gets reduced by some frequency-dependent saturation. Okay, so what I want you to take from this slide is just remember S is a measure of how hard we're pumping the system. Okay, so a little bit of math. Um, although most of what we do today I think is going to be more intuitive by looking at pictures than the math, but a little bit of math. Um, the Bennett hole is created by a strong pump beam. Okay, the depth of that Bennett hole is a function of how strong the pump beam is. And it occurs at whatever frequency the pump beam is at. So you can think of the pump beam as burning a hole in the absorption profile. So if you measure that line profile by a weak probe beam, so weak meaning it has a negligible, or the Bennett hole produced by the probe beam is negligibly small compared to the Bennett hole produced by the pump beam. Then when we scan the probe beam across the profile, it's not going to saturate the profile. It will actually measure the profile as produced by the pump beam. So we can scan it in frequency and measure this green curve, which has this Bennett hole dip due to the pump beam right here. The probe amplitude is smaller than the pump. So the absorption coefficient that's measured is this alpha of omega, which on the last slide we said was the saturated absorption profile related to the unsaturated absorption profile by this frequency-dependent saturation parameter. can write this absorption as the population difference times a cross-section. That's always the case. An absorption coefficient is a, pop is a population density times a cross-section. And so if we look at the population density that has a frequency component Vz, a frequency a, a velocity, trans a longitudinal velocity component V sub z, we consider atoms that have a longitudinal velocity component between v sub z and v sub z plus dv sub z. Then only a fraction of the atoms have that particular velocity, and those are the ones that will contribute to absorption at a Doppler shifted frequency. The fre Doppler shifted frequency given by that particular velocity. So those atoms will have an absorption cross section, which is Doppler shifted. A Doppler shift shifted by V sub Z. Yes. Okay, so here's that expression that we just, just put out. 
Now, population difference, we can write in terms of the unsaturated population difference and then the saturation. And so the saturation parameter, S, I said was frequency dependent. So the frequency dependence is here. Explicitly written it out. This is the frequency dependence of a Lorentzian. So this is the line width, gamma. This is the detuning of the laser from the resonance. And that gets shifted. This is the Doppler shift due to the longitudinal component. So this term is the line shape. S naught is the magnitude evaluated. It's the magnitude of the um, saturation parameter evaluated at omega, evaluated on resonance. It's the easiest way to say it. So this is the magnitude and this is the shape. So as the system becomes more and more saturated, this term represents the reduction in the population difference. So the population difference gets reduced. That reduces the absorption coefficient. But that happens only at only at frequencies that match up with a, the Doppler shift of the atoms they're affecting. So we can write an expression for the population difference, or the number of atoms, the number density of atoms that have a longitudinal component of velocity V sub Z, and it's just going to be a uh, Boltzmann distribution. So faster moving atoms have a greater energy. We compare that to the thermal energy, which is related to this most probable velocity V sub P over here. Yes and no. So if this is three, then you get um, so if you say one half mv squared is equal to kt. You say the kinetic energy due to velocity in the z direction is equal to kt. This is the kinetic energy due to the velocity component in the z direction. I know that over there you're saying v, p, not v, v, p, the most probable velocity. So the atoms don't all have the same velocity, but this would be some sort of average. Um, if you just calculated their speed, and you said there's three degrees of freedom, Then you'd get, uh, I guess you'd get three halves, or six, I'm sorry, six, yes. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so this is the, the Boltzmann distribution. It has to be normalized. So if you integrate this over all possible velocities, just this exponential factor, you get um, square root of pi v sub p. So we normalize it by that factor. And we say that this is the, this is the uh, number density at a velocity of zero. Okay, so plugging that in here, plugging that in there, um, allows us to express the Doppler shifted Lorentzian cross section by taking um, all of this frequency dependence on the population density and pretending it's on the cross section instead. So when we take this this uh, frequency dependence, which comes from the population difference, if instead we group it with the cross section, we can write. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm misinterpreting what's on the slide. We can write the Doppler-shifted cross-section in the same method we wrote, um, wrote this term here. This is the cross-section on resonance, and this is the line shape, and it has a Doppler shift on it. That's independent of what we did before. So this has a frequency dependence, the sigma, and this has a frequency dependence as well. So putting all of that together in this expression and integrating over all possible velocities, we get the saturated absorption profile in terms of the unsaturated absorption profile. So, yeah. So this cross-section over here, when it gets integrated, gives us the um, unsaturated absorption profile, which is this term. And then this term here comes in the saturation, the decrease in the number density. And because this comes from the saturation, the frequency that goes in here is that of the pump. So if we're doing this with a, a pump and a probe, this is the frequency of the pump. But this is the frequency of the probe, or the frequency at which, I mean, this is the absorption profile as a function of omega. So if you scan your probe and you're measuring the probe frequency, that's this omega. This is the pump frequency. So. When the pump equals the probe, or at least when this term is small compared to this term, so when the pump and probe are within a line width of each other, then you see the Bennett hole. You see the effect from this saturation. When the pump and probe are not close to each other, so that this term is negligible, 
this term right here just contributes an overall frequency independent reduction to the absorption profile. Now when they're far from each other, this term is negligible. So this fraction does not have a frequency dependence. This is a constant over 2 divided by a constant over 2. Uh, if they're far from each other, actually this, I'm sorry, let me say it differently. If they're far from each other, this term is big. Since it's in the denominator, this entire fraction becomes small. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. If they're close to each other, this term becomes small, right? And then this fraction becomes big, and the effect becomes significant. Thanks. So the height without the Bennett hole would be the um, would be the unsaturated absorption, and then this height due to the Bennett hole is the saturated part, which is the magnitude right here. S naught over square root of one plus S naught. So when S naught is equal to zero, this term is irrelevant. As S naught grows, it becomes more significant. This, this term, capital gamma, tells us about the, the line width of the system. So the line width of the saturated part. So how far does omega need to shift from omega prime to become significant? Well, that depends on how big this term is. This term needs to become smaller than this term. So the size of this term is what determines how far omega needs to be detuned from omega naught or omega prime. This is the sum of the unsaturated line width, meaning the line width of the probe, and the saturated line width, the line width of the pump. So you have the pump and the probe interacting. So when they're with, they each have some width. When those widths overlap, that's when they're interacting. So you have to take into account the line width of the probe and the line width of the pump. Okay, so maybe the easiest way to observe this is with a single laser that's double passing in a system. So here's an absorption cell. There's a laser going through it, reflecting back, and then you're off the reflection and measuring it. And so essentially what we have um, is counter-propagating beams. Remember when you have counter-propagating beams, then when atoms are moving, they're going to see their resonant frequency upshifted by one beam and downshifted by the other. And so this might be moving a little bit fast, but um, if you picked a particular Doppler shift and you look at the homogeneous line profile for atoms moving with that longitudinal velocity, then when the laser is at a frequency where those, are, those atoms are resonant, the retroreflected laser 
we'll see the atoms that had a Doppler shift over there. Essentially, the laser going in one direction sees these distribution of homogeneous line profiles. The laser going in the other direction sees the mirror image of this. Atoms that are moving to the left would have their Doppler frequency upshifted, as seen by the rightward going laser, and downshifted, as seen by the left. So what happens is um, there's some absorption when you're tuned off resonance. There's some absorption that's saturated due to the Doppler shifted components in one direction. And then you have different components being Doppler shifted in the other direction. So in going one way, you're saturating some of the atoms. And when you come back, you're saturating a completely different group of atoms. But the atoms that have no longitudinal velocity component that are either stationary or moving in the transverse plane, those get saturated both on the way in and the way out. So they see twice as much saturation. And so when these two frequencies overlap, you get that dip. You just now try to watch the, uh, the little animation. Let's see if that makes sense. So you essentially have the same laser being the pump and the probe. And as you tune the laser frequency, you scan the pump and the probe until they interact with the same atoms. And so that Bennett hole right there is called the lamb dip. It's in the center of the profile, and it's due to a single laser double passing the system, or, or a laser, two lasers at the same frequency propagating in opposite directions. So the, they'll have twice the amount of saturation for the atoms that have no uh, longitudinal velocity component. So the same lasers, the pump and the probe. So if we talk about the absorption that laser sees as a function of omega, we had an expression like integrating population difference times a cross-section over all the possible velocity components. But now there's a cross-section that gets Doppler shifted up and a cross-section that gets Doppler shifted down when you double pass it. So this term can only be on resonance at the same time as this term if Vz is equal to zero. Those are the only atoms that see absorption in both directions. And so for atoms with the velocity component of zero, they get twice the amount of saturation. You can do the integral, and you get an expression for the absorption, cross, the absorption profile. It looks very similar to that calculated for the pump-probe pump experiment. All the line widths here are the saturated line widths, because we don't have a low-power, unsaturated probe like we did before. So you can do spectroscopy using this effect. And if you have two closely spaced energy levels, so closely spaced in that the Doppler spread of the line profiles would exceed the spacing of the lines, then, so here's the two Doppler broadened lines. Um, you wouldn't expect to be able to resolve these two if they're within the line width of each other. But if you do this double passing technique, 
then you can observe the lambda from each one. And so the sum of the two absorption profiles have these two dips, one for each resonance. And as long as the line width of the natural, the natural line width, the line width of each individual resonance is less than their separation, those can be resolved. So there's a variety of methods that allow you to make this measurement, subtract off the inhomogeneous background and just look at the effect from the dip. So one of those methods is lock-in detection. So I think your homework this week deals with lock-in detection. By the way, the homework on the homework it said it was due Monday the 16th. So uh, the 16th is Wednesday. I think everybody is used to turning in homeworks on Wednesday. Hopefully that, well, nobody turned anything in, so it's due Wednesday. Um, okay, so lock-in detection means you take your laser and you modulate it. So one way to modulate it, a very common way, is with a, a chopper. So a chopper is a spinning wheel that has holes cut in it. So it's like shining the laser through a fan, a spinning fan blade or something like that. So it's going to be modulated coming through. And you can modulate one beam or the other or both of them. You can modulate them at different frequencies. Here we consider the case where the pump beam is modulated. The probe beam is not. So as you tune the frequency of the probe, or actually we're tuning, in this diagram they're coming from the same laser, so they're both being tuned. So we're looking for the lamb dip. Here's what you see, your DC detection. Every time there's an atomic resonance, you see this lamb dip the center of the resonance. There's this broad Doppler background. But if the pump beam is modulated and you look at the probe and how much of that probe has or how much power there is at the modulation frequency, if the probe beam doesn't interact with the pump beam, then there should be no signal on the probe beam at this modulation frequency. So you're blinking the pump beam, you wouldn't expect the probe beam to be blinking if they don't interact. If they interact by being spatially overlapped and by being at a frequency where the leftward going pump is exciting the same atoms as the rightward going probe, then when the pump beam is on, it's going to saturate the system and the probe will see a reduced absorption and when the pump beam is off because it's being blocked by the chopper, then the pump beam doesn't saturate the system because it's not there. So the probe beam seems, sees a larger absorption. And the amount of power in the probe beam is going to fluctuate at this pump frequency. That only occurs when the pump and probe are exciting the same, same atoms. It only occurs when they're on atomic resonance. And as a result, if you do the lock-in detection, all you're observing are these dips. You're not observing the broad background, which represent the, uh, the signal detected when the pump and probe are exciting different atoms. Okay, so that's a very common technique. 
for measuring the effect of one quantity on another. So Back here. They say those dips uh, space with the frequency of the No. These dips are, if you were able to observe this, this entire line profile sort of instantaneously and see how it changes, as the chopper turns the pump beam on and off, these dips would go away and turn on. It'd be turning on and going away. The rest of this broad background would always be there, because that's just due to the probe beam being absorbed by the Doppler shifted absorption profile. But these are due to the pump beam saturating the same atoms that the probe beam is observing. And that only occurs for atoms that have no longitudinal velocity component. Those are the only ones that interact with both beams. And so you'd see this background, and these peaks would be going up and down. The rest of this would be constant. So if you just then said, what parts of this plot are changing at the modulation frequency, it's, it's these peaks. And that's what a lock-in detector does. It looks for the part of a signal that's changing at a specified frequency. And so it would essentially be measuring the difference between the saturated and the unsaturated lines. And that's exactly what it does. It, measure, it measures the difference, where the difference is caused by the, probe, the pump being turned on and off very rapidly. You can do that yourself if you don't have a lock-in amplifier. You can do it yourself by measuring the difference between the saturated and unsaturated, what's called the differential measurement. Only certain atoms are saturating. So, and yes, that corresponds to certain frequencies. So this plot shows atoms or molecules that have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It looks like seven different closely spaced atomic transitions. And if there were no Doppler broadening, if all the atoms were stationary, this plot would just look like um, a peak, a peak, a peak. It would just look like seven narrow peaks. But because the atoms are moving around, each one of those narrow peaks gets Doppler broadened. And the Doppler broadening exceeds the separation. And so you just see this, con this sum of all the different lines. So you can't resolve the individual lines. But with the pump beam turned on, the pump will excite all the different atoms. The probe will see all the different atoms as well. But the only atoms that will be seen by the pump and the probe um, at the same time are the ones with no velocity component. Because as you scan the laser frequency, what's going to happen is if you consider an atom moving towards the pump beam and you're increasing the laser frequency, first the pump beam sees those atoms and saturates them. And then as you continue to tune the laser frequency, the pump beam falls off resonance, and then the probe beam comes into resonance as you increase the laser frequency more. So you're moving away from the probe beams, their, their energy levels get downshifted. And so they occur at two different times as you scan the, the laser.
Okay, so a lock-in, let's say your chopper modulates the signal at one kilohertz, it's doing a differential measurement a thousand times a second. It's comparing the signal when the pump's off to when the pump's on. Pump's off, pump's on. Okay, so the poor man's version of a lock-in is differential measurements. So the idea here is basically the same thing. You measure the, the probe absorption when it interacts with the pump and when it doesn't. And so here we have a pump going through here. And as I've drawn it, the probe is going in the same direction. If you're doing this with the same laser, you would have the probe going in an opposite direction. But in any event, uh, you have two different paths for the probe. One that, let's say, goes parallel to the pump and never actually crosses the pump beam. So they see different atoms. And you can measure that, and that would measure the unsaturated absorption profile. So as you tune the probe through the line transit, through the line profile, you'd measure the unsaturated line profile with this detector, which is the light that never sees the, the pump. And then you have another path that crosses through the pump's path. And so that's going to see the saturated line profile. Right? So if you take the difference of those two, that's what the lock-in detector does. The lock-in does it automatically a thousand times a second. This, you have to measure these, you know, plug them into a calculator, use your computer, however your experiment is set up, but you have to do it manually. So it's, it's more time consuming. And it, uh, but it can give equally effective results. The same, the same sensitivity as lock-in detection. Uh, we talked about intermodulated fluorescence already. I'll remind you that was where we had two counterpropagating beams modulated at different frequencies. And we looked for the fluorescence that occurred that had frequency components uh, that were the sum or the difference of those two frequencies. And so I'm going to skip over the math here and just look at the pictures, sort of in terms of the pictures that we've been drawing today. We have two different, or uh, we have a pump and a probe that are traveling in opposite directions. They can come from the same laser. Because they're traveling in opposite directions, they excite atoms that have different signs of their velocity component at the same time. So the Doppler shifted, however far the laser is, shift is from resonance. That's how much the atoms need to be Doppler shifted. And for in one direction they need to be Doppler shifted up, in the other direction they have to be Doppler shifted down. If the light in those two directions has different frequency components, that means uh, this absorption is being turned on and off at a different frequency that this absorption is being turned on and off. And so what you would detect, if you look at the fluorescence, you see absorption due to this, uh, this beam, and then it fluoresces. The amount of fluorescence is going to be modulated at omega-1, because the laser power is modulated at omega-1. This fluorescence over here that comes from the second beam is going to be modulated at omega-2, so you'd see two different frequency components on your fluorescence. But when the laser is tuned directly on line center, then these two beams are exciting the same atoms. And so the absorption depends on omega-1 and omega-2. 
and its frequency components at omega 1 plus or minus omega 2. You only see that when both beams are being, being absorbed. So you only see that on resonance, when, when the uh, laser is tuned within a homogeneous profile of resonance. So that's the principle behind the intermodulated fluorescence. Here's the experimental setup. These choppers, I'll bring one in. Uh, maybe I'll bring one in next time. But typically, they're wheels that have slots cut in them. And at different radii, they have different numbers of slots. So there might be 10 slots cut around the outside of the rim and five cut around the inside, something like that. So you can use a single chopper and send light through the outside slits and modulate it at one frequency and around the inside slits modulate it at a different frequency. So you can use, use it to modulate both beams, send them into the sample in different directions, and then detect the fluorescence. Fluorescence we would generally look at with a photomultiplier tube since we have low power. And then we'd look for components at the sum frequency or the difference frequency. And so here's an experiment that was done that way. This is the background absorption that was measured. So independent of the frequency of the fluorescence. This is just like the amount of fluorescence. And when you look at the amount at the frequency being detected by the lock-in, it's only going to see the fluorescence that's being excited by both counter-propagating beams. So you can see this is obviously zoomed in, but you can see these narrow lines that are well resolved. And they correspond to uh, little dips over here in the fluorescence. They're dips because the material is being saturated twice as much. It's being saturated by both beams at the same time, so you get less total absorption, less total fluorescence. These little dips here, which can barely be distinguished from the noise on this measurement, are easily observed with the lock-in detection. Okay, so one of, the one of the difficulties you can encounter with lamb dip spectroscopy, lamb dip spectroscopy, is that when you have closely spaced energy levels, you can get some confusing effects that affect what your spectrum looks like. So here's a case where we have a couple closely spaced upper energy levels. And as we tune the laser, the, the both the pump and the probe from a frequency that's below resonance to a frequency that's above res resonance and record the absorption. It's this, this plot here, the absorption that we see is this purple line. The unsaturated absorption for the two transitions are these black lines. And so what we see with the purple line is that the peak gets saturated because of this lamb dip effect. Both counterpropagating beams saturate the atoms that have no transverse or no longitudinal velocity component, so we get twice as much saturation here. So we get this dip. And that occurs for both peaks. And those two dips are what we can separate out as the two lines. But we also get an effect in between where these two profiles cross. And you can think of it as another doubly 
saturated system where atoms from one transition are being saturated by the laser in one direction and the atoms in the other system are being saturated by lasers in the other by the laser in the other direction you get twice the saturation you get this crossover dip in between another way to explain it is on the energy diagram if the laser is tuned exactly halfway between these two energy states then atoms that are moving such that their Doppler frequency shift is enough to shift the laser onto resonance will shift the incoming laser to a higher energy level which occurs which corresponds to a resonant transition it will shift the away going laser to a lower energy level which is also a resonant transition so even though there is no resonant transition at this point halfway in between the atoms well when you're tuned to that point halfway in between there are some atoms that have a particular doppler shift that will um, that will be resonant for both both beams which is what you're looking for you're looking for atoms that are resonant for both beams and that produces a saturation dip so that's a crossover dip same thing can occur if you have two closely spaced lower levels only now instead of a dip in the absorption you have an increase because your upper state instead of saturating the lower state you're saturating the upper state or you're reducing the population in the upper state when the energy is uh, corresponds to transition from the upper state to halfway between the two lower states then for a certain subset of atoms they can shift that energy to the very lowest state for one direction beam and to the other state for the other direction beam and those atoms will get stimulated into a transition and deplete the upper state reducing an increased absorption which is this peak crossover peak so the spectra that you measure using this effect the nice thing is when you have counter propagating beams is you can resolve homogeneous line profiles that are within the Doppler broadening but the challenge is you can also introduce these other apparent spectral lines which don't actually correspond to uh, your energy levels so this is the common lower level So it's another case of um, what you observe may not be easy to interpret. There's information there, and if you know what your spectrum looks like, you can attribute all this structure to different transitions. If you don't know what it looks like, it could be a mess to try to go through and resolve this. Right, so um, you know, your ability to analyze the data, your ability to come up with possible spectra that match this uh, will determine how useful these types of measurements are. They're not as straightforward as just sort of our canonical example of scan the laser frequency everywhere there's a, a dip or an, a, 
a bump in the uh, amount of fluorescence, there's, there's a transition. Um, okay, so anyhow, we'll, we'll wrap up there and uh,